Hi, I'm Dave Miller at DriveWithDave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. My guest today, Dave Alexander, is the guy you want to talk to because of his vast knowledge of European sports cars. I met Dave and his wife, Terry, back in the mid-90s at the 12 Hours of Sebring in Florida, and since then we've had countless conversations about cars. Today I talk with Dave about how he got into the exotic car business and his insights on buying and collecting sports cars. I want to welcome to the show my longtime friend, Dave Alexander. David, good morning. Good morning, David. Thanks for the call. Yeah, absolutely, and thanks for coming on the show. You know, I, you and I have spent a lot of time uh, between uh, where you work and uh, what I do and everything talking about cars, and one of the things that always surprises me is the commonality between our guests, and how did you how'd you fall in love with the automobile? What happened? Well, you, you summed it up. It started at the very beginning, so I guess I come by it pretty honestly, and then uh, being older, riding in your dad's car, who who is excited about cars and talked about cars all the time and mostly English cars, Jaguars and the like that he had owned previously. And uh, you go for a ride and he runs it up through the gears and you watch him steer it and and you see how excited he is and it's just a natural, natural progression. And uh, I think I had my first subscription to Road & Track at age 10. So... Uh, <laughs> It just starts there. <laughs> and didn't your, uh, I think you had confided to me too that your your parents took you, uh, when they tried to cheer you up, they would take you out in that uh, 1960 Volvo. Uh, and what was it? It was a 544, uh-huh. which back in those days was considered a pretty sporting car, a 1600 four-speed 544, only car they had. My dad was a professor at Michigan State at the time. And, uh, he, you know, so he's your Pipe smoking, uh, pipe smoking professor driving a Volvo, stereotypical, you know, philosophy professor. Uh huh. And uh, did you fall in love with the Spartans as well, or is that another story? Oh, that's another story, but I always love the Spartans. Sure, you have no choice, <laughs> once again. <laughs> no question about it. Well, yeah. you know what, David, I, I also know that you spent a little bit of time post college in the corporate world, but um, that wasn't your big thing. Yeah, marketing and finance jobs, and but uh, I was always. Uh, always owning cars and working on cars and driving cars on the racetrack and hanging around with all my Alfa Romeo buddies. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was my, uh, anytime I wasn't working, that's what I was thinking about. So, so one day you wandered into Continental Auto Sports or did they, I, I'm sorry, they probably called you and said, David, we really need you down here. How'd that happen? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I knew those guys. I bought a Ferrari in 1986, a 330 GT for headlamp. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I was 24 years old at the time, so pretty pretty young Ferrari owner. Ended up getting to know the people at Continental, um, the sales manager there, the service guys. A few of the guys still work there. Mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. decided after leaving the corporate world that I wanted to be, I wanted to do something with cars. I ended up having my own company for a while, buying cars for people, and then worked at a regular car dealership for about nine months hated every minute of it. Hmm. And then I walked into Continental to say hello to a couple people I knew a few days after I had uh, quit that job. And uh, the sales manager said, 
well, Dave, our internet guy left. Why don't you, why don't you come over here, have an interview next week with the owner and we'll see what we can do. And about May 1st, 2000, I started working there. So 17 years ago, you mm-hmm. walked in and you, and somebody said, Hey, I think this whole internet thing might catch on. And, uh, Right. And in those days, car dealerships were, they had, they still, some of them still do had separate internet departments, but today in the exotic and collector car world, the internet is just an integral part of the regular sales process. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting too, David, that your first exotic, you you just, uh, you went big time and went for uh, all the money and you bought a Ferrari. How come? Uh, A dream, like all of my clients, Mm. it's a fulfillment of a dream. And, uh, you know, my first dream was having an English sports car. Then I saw my first Alfa Romeo with aluminum engine and a mm. five-speed transmission. I was got really hooked on Italian cars. So what do you start doing? Researching them like crazy. And, of course, you end up being interested in Ferraris. I know when I think of Dave Alexander, I think everybody wants to sit down with David and sit around and say, hey, Dave, what do you think of this? And how about this sports car? And would you buy X and everything? You have a ton, a ton of replacements repeat clients. You're always communicating with these people. It's got to be very important for you to forge a relationship. How do you do that? Well, I think, you know, buying a Ferrari for probably over 90% of Ferrari owners is fulfillment of a dream that they had many years ago, maybe when they started their business and they thought it would in five years, they'd do well enough to buy a Ferrari. And of course, 25 years later is when they buy it. Mm. Um, so it's something that ex- that's exciting for them, and it's something that's exciting for me. And if you can convey that excitement, um, you uh, and the client sees that excitement, you begin to forge a relationship. Mm. Uh, in the end, it's really about trust, and it's really about the fact that as a salesperson, you want uh, you want to gain the client's trust and you want them to feel comfortable and they need to have they're spending in many cases on tremendous amount of money uh-huh. so um, they need to have somebody to bounce ideas off of mm-hmm. and uh, and try a balloon and if you've been there multiple times of course you you can help them out because it's not about selling one car and making a big hit it's about it's about being with these people and uh, spending time with them and understanding them maybe better than they do about what they might might want in a car. So, so you practice a little psychology with that as well. Yeah, it's it's more of a natural progression, but but yes, it's not that conscious on my part. It's just more. Um, I try to treat people the way I'd want to be treated if I was walking in buying a very expensive car. Let's say the average guy comes in and like you said, 25 years ago, he had a dream. Well, he's, he's well to do and maybe he can afford a car, but not the car. So the guy or gal that wants a 488 or an FF or something like that might have to step back a little bit, but, um, but what do you advise them? Well, we, I would definitely point them towards a, towards a used Ferrari. I mean, there it's, you know, it's keys to the club. Uh, that whole Ferrari world, there's nothing wrong with a used Ferrari. Um, there are many great ones out there. We always try to have very nice uh, nice cars. Really, it's not really like buying a used car. Most people, when they think of a used car, they think of something with 80,000 miles on it that's a little beat up that's uh, going to get them back and forth to work. Well, 
That's not what this is. It's just as exciting as a new one in many ways, sometimes more exciting. It's a long, it's almost always a fairly long-term process, long-term, you know, from a car sales standpoint, meaning usually several months. Um, and uh, if someone has $100,000 to spend, we typically have something that they might consider. And there's pluses and minuses, and we have to all work together to, uh, to find something that meets their needs, drive a few cars, and uh, move on from there. And hopefully I've got something they want. Sometimes you educate them well enough to buy their own car, but that's, that just goes with the territory from somebody else. <laughs> Hopefully they remember you, though. You know? <laughs> yeah, hopefully they do, right? That's why you, yeah. that's why you have those business cards. I, I think that there are a lot of people out there, like we were talking about, that can't afford this or, or can't afford that. So I've been telling people lately, and this, this is maybe crazy, but this is me. I tell people that everybody says the first thing they want to do is jump on the Internet and go see what they can afford. And I'm telling them, because this is, this is personal experience, I'm telling them that the first place you ought to go is to your Ferrari dealer, and here's why. I want to look at the cars and feel it up close before I start making a decision because a 348 and a 355 are virtually the same dimensions, but they're two very different cars. And some people are going to say, well, I like the Strakes, like the old Testarossas. Or the other one's going to say, well, I like the, the Scoops, I like the back end better or so. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think it's a great place to start because the Ferrari is actually all about uh, sensory overload kind of experience. And it doesn't really matter whether you're buying a brand new one or whether you're buying the $35,000 Mondial Coupe. Mm -hmm. um, it's still a sensory experience. Um, it's the way it sounds, the way it smells, the way it steers, the way the, way the shifter feels. It's all... A unique experience and uh, I think every car enthusiast uh, should experience that at some point you know yeah. I, I I think one of the things that I hear all the time on the street from people that aren't car people or certainly sports car people is if you buy a Ferrari it's going to appreciate right or wrong well eventually maybe but certainly is not going to depreciate depreciate as quickly as other cars uh -huh. and if you buy a 10 year old Ferrari the value of the car is really determined by condition, options, uh, and overall desirability of that particular model that you're looking at. And uh, it really doesn't depreciate very much after it's 10 years old. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, it could cost you a whole lot less than buy buying a $100,000 used Ferrari. In the end, could cost you less money than buying a new $50,000 regular car mm -hmm. when you look at the total cost. Mm -hmm. um, and is... Uh is leasing better than purchasing, Dave? I always get those confused. Well, you always have to look at the numbers of each individual deal, but leasing makes sense uh, typically on new cars when the manufacturer's promoting it and offering a very low interest rate, a very high residual, um, so as a result, a very low monthly payment. And, of course, if you're in business, if you can write that off against your business, that's that, you know, that saves you a few dollars there too. And so then it can make sense. Traditional leasing on a collectible car uh, under most circumstances is more expensive than borrowing money if that's what you want to do. I wanted to segue into your expertise, the thing that you do for a living, what everybody wants to talk to you about. And 
It's collecting cars, and generally these are vintage automobiles. In general terms, what's your advice? I think collecting cars can be a lot of fun. Um, that's what I tend to do personally. Uh, and so you got to buy what you love. Mm-hmm. That way, if the thing doesn't double in value in five years, and maybe it's only worth what you paid for it or a little more, mm-hmm. you, you feel good about it because you say, hey, look, I could have gone out and bought a brand new car for $100,000. Yeah. Today, it would be worth thirty. I yeah. bought this car instead for $100,000, and it's worth one hundred and ten. I probably spent 15 on it, so that was an awful lot of fun for $5,000. You know, that also brings up the, the fact that I've heard so often, the, the guy or girl that you're sitting down with and you're just talking to them, especially if they're a new collector, have they, have they missed this run-up? There's been this huge run-up for, I would say, what, the last five years made some significant upsides in this thing. Are those collectors out of the money? Did they miss the boat? First of all, I think the run-up started in about 2003, so it's been going on for quite some time. And we could talk about why, but but I don't think that's important at the moment. Um, have you missed it? Well, it, it's a more difficult market today, and the returns would probably not be immediate, which is why you really need to buy something you love. Um, there are still cars out there that are undervalued. Now is a great time to buy something that's very rare and expensive. But when we talk about expensive, we might be talking about multi-million dollar cars, and uh-huh. not everybody is in that right. category. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are opportunities there right now um, because uh, sometimes when the really rare, really interesting, super exotic stuff can't be bought when the market's moving up because the guy that owns it says, you know, it's moving up like crazy. Why should I sell it? Is the market softening for the regular old cars? The market the market has corrected and probably isn't going to soften a whole lot more, uh-huh. barring a huge financial collapse, in which case we're all in trouble, so it doesn't really matter. Um, the, the market has softened and is pretty stable. There are guys out there buying and selling cars today. Um, and the speculators are not really in the market right now. Do you see similarities? You and I have both, we both remember well Enzo Ferrari's passing and how that, uh, that was supposed to affect the market and then that collapse in 1990. Bubble? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic situation of where uh, a market moves up because of a lot of very strong fundamentals and then gets overheated and then has to drop back down to a more normal market. And the and the drop in 1990 was huge, and I think mostly because there was even more speculation going on then, and there was an awful lot of borrowed money. Today, not anywhere near the amount of borrowed money, um, and the people that own these really desirable collectible cars have paid cash for them, and they don't need to sell them, so that helps stabilize the market. You know, speaking of markets, and I know, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a Porsche owner. Is that right? Yeah, I have one Porsche. What do you have? 84 911 uh, Carrera 3.2. This is what I don't get. Porsche has built, I'm going to say, what, a zillion cars, and yet the (laughs) run-up on the run-up in the vintage Porsche market, I don't get it. Help me. Well, I think it can be explained in a number of ways. A, they're good cars. B, they are, um, there's a strong following for the cars and there's a good supply of nice cars out there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, 9-11 guys, some of them border on being fanatical. And so it's a really strong club, if you will, or a group of people. And, and that keeps the demand up. Um, and parts are readily available and so on. So it's a pretty easy car to own. A lot of people work on them. Um, they're not rare by any stretch of the imagination, except for very, very, you know, specialized versions. Um, and then it becomes sort of like, well, they only made so many blue ones with a limited slip and these wheels on it in 1986, you know, uh, uh-huh. which gets a little silly. Uh, but uh, they're uh-huh. great cars. Um, uh-huh. They're very interesting and they're very different. Uh, you and I both come from an Alfa Romeo background. You still love those cars undervalued? Are there still still deals to pick up on those cars? I think Alfa Romeos are undervalued in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I and and one of the reasons they're undervalued is the knowledge about the cars, especially in the United States, is not that strong. Parts are a little more difficult to come by. And Alphas were traditionally owned by crazy car enthusiasts that just ran them into the ground. And so it's hard to find truly great Alphas. And when you run into a great one, it's an amazing drive. If you were going to snap up an Alpha right now, what would, what would you buy? Uh, a, on, the, on the higher price ranges, a Giulietta Veloce, either Spider or Coupe. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the middle kind of range, uh, an Alpha GTV, and probably a really nice early '70s Camtail Spider. Right now, is still pretty undervalued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And GTVs you... have come up in value. The Spiders haven't really followed them. If you can find a really nice Camtail '71, '72, '73, great car, mm-hmm. great car, and, and a reasonable price. And you, you were down at Amelia Island recently. Were you, were you surprised at the auctions? I understand that uh, Sotheby's sent a new record. They're just, considering everybody's talking soft market, I was, I was shocked. How was Amelia Island this year? Amelia Island, was, I would call it pretty rational. That's, that's the term I would use. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of knowledgeable enthusiasts, enthusiasts buying and selling cars. You can always have a record uh, a great car comes everybody knows what it is you have three or four guys in the room that want it mm-hmm. that have a bunch of money mm-hmm. you you can do, you can get record results under those circumstances the more typical car was was down 10 to 20 percent from market highs but mm-hmm. that's that's nothing scary the very best examples will bring strong money but a car that's nice but needs needs some work will you know the the way the reason, well, if it needs $100,000 in work and the best one in the world's a half a million dollars, then I'm willing to pay four hundred. Mm-hmm. as opposed to when the market's going, oh, oh just buy it anyway. It'll just, next year, it'll be worth $200,000 more. It doesn't matter. Right. Well, now it matters. Now it matters. Uh, yeah. You know, something that's interested me, too, was uh, importing gray market cars. There's, I see these in sports car market, in various places, certainly on the Internet. People talk about them. So if I've got a car, and, and I love British cars like you do, too, I've got something that I want to import into the United States. Easy, tough. Well, if it's over 25 years old, you have no worries, except perhaps in California, registering it in California, because... California has their own rules. Here, here. Um, uh, so then, and those cars are pre-1975, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. It, it's easy. Mm-hmm. But so if you want to import a car that's over 25 years old, you, re- you don't have any federal EPA or DOT concerns. You can just import the car. Mm-hmm. Um, so relatively easy thing to do. You've got to pay the duty and so on, but easy stuff. Um, 
newer than that, it's a it's pretty sticky, and you got to have uh, strong. You have to be willing to convert the car to meet the EPA and DOT specs from that year. Uh, you need to find somebody that's an expert in that particular car, and uh, it's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. There are exemptions for show and so on that, that can be looked at, but it, it, it gets pretty complicated. And for most people, it's not worth the expense and the frustration. So if I've got an XJ220, I want to bring it over here and trade it in on uh, a LaFerrari, that's going to be a project. Yes, more than likely. Those cars are never cert- certified for the U.S., and, and you're probably going to go for the the show car exemption on something like that, which really limits the amount of use you can have with the car, which is probably fine because no one's going to use it much. David, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about trends. I wanted to hear your thoughts on what's coming out of the factory uh, micro, micro manufacturers like Singer Porsche. And I love the idea that Jaguar just came out with a lightweight Land Rover from the factory. They're releasing their Series 1 and now Series 2 cars. Aston Martin, the DB4 uh, GT continuation. What's your take on all this? Oh, I think it's all neat stuff. I, I think it's exciting and it's and it's fun. Um, the, my only worry is when, when the manufacturer makes, quote, an exact replica of an old car, that 30 years down the road, somebody doesn't try to pass it off as an old car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the big concern if it's if it's absolutely, you know, because fakes in the collector car market are a real problem. Uh, nothing wrong with this new stuff. I mean, the Singer, I think, is an interesting car, um, but it's it's not the same car as as an original 911. Right. It's, it's not the same. You know, you had mentioned replicas, and I I go round and round with my friends, people I know well. I I might be out drinking someplace, and somebody will bring up one of my favorites, which is the Beck Spider. I like that car because I think it's just, it is so cool. 120, 130 uh, horsepower will move you down the the road very quickly. And that's certainly the bottom end at 30 or 40 or $50,000. Then you got people like Proteus in the UK or GTO Engineering that are coming out with their uh, replicas that are every nut, bolt, and screw Ferrari. Um, what do you think of replicas generally? You know, if you're talking about Ferraris, it's maybe different. But a Beck Spider, I think, is an awesome concept. A real 550 is what? four or five, six yeah. million dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a real simple, minimalist car. So from an engineering standpoint, um, you know, it can be reliable and the average guy can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a great thing. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, I think it's a lot of fun, but I, I also wouldn't confuse it with, you know, from a fin- pure financial standpoint, you might be better off at buying a, you know, an old 356 for 50 or $60,000, mm-hmm. a 356 B coupe. But if what you want is a 550 with a hot rod motor, um, awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't mind having one. Fun. <laughs> and I see the Proteus, and I know you've seen them, of course. Yeah. Some of the Proteus stuff, uh, the C type, especially and the D type from the UK, beautiful cars. Question is, what are you going to do with it? You know, that's that's really the question. You know, you're, you're not going to vintage race it. You're not going to, you know, you're, you're going to drive it around. And, and if you're going to drive it around and do tours and so on, that's great. But if you want to get into one of these rallies, these more prestigious rallies, you can have a car like an MGA or a Giulietta or a 356. If it's old enough and you can 
you can be in some of the most prestigious rallies in the world in a sub $100,000 car. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the long run, that's only going to add to the value of those cars. Replicas, okay, as long as they are what they are. And you don't. Right. Just yeah. understand what you have. I mean, I'd love a Beck Spider. I think it's really a cool car. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Me too. Laura and I, my wife and I have differing opinions of that. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) you know what's coming. I know where you and Terry live, and it's not a long haul for you to work, but self-driving cars, what's your take? I'm not interested, but uh, I'm sure there's a place for them once the technology's figured out. And maybe that'll make make it easier for the rest of us that enjoy driving. And where's the place for the self-driving cars? Well, I mean, it'll probably, it hopefully would reduce fatalities. And I guess if you had a real long commute or something, it sort of, you know, you could sit there and do your work while you, while you drive to work, I guess. But, uh, you know, for someone that doesn't like driving, why not? You know? you know, tell me if you anticipate this problem in the future, but um, it seems to me that millennials at least from what I read, what I hear, are less and less interested in cars than uh, the past generations, especially especially in your business where you re- you rely on repeat customers. You want that business. Um, how do you see that affecting the, the, the future of car collecting, for instance? I think it does and it doesn't. I think that there are plenty of people, that young people that are interested in cars. And I think the mar- markets are just becoming in everything so segmented today that we're going to create a group of people, young people that are interested in cars. I, I We have no end of young, young kids coming into our store, looking at cars and being excited about Ferraris and knowing what every Ferrari model is. And if they see that we've got an F50 in the shop, they know what that is. And if there's a Lancia Stratos in the shop, they're like, Oh, I've never seen a Lancia Stratos. And the kid's 10 years old, and you're like, wow. I know. You know what a Lancia Stratos is? So <laughs> they're still out there. Um, there are always, the majority of people aren't interested in cars. That's fine. More for us. So you don't see that as a problem for the future, especially if people are walking into the dealerships all the time. They're asking about this and about that. And how do you introduce them to, to that thing? Do they, they walk in the door and they say, hey, do you have a Lancia Stratos Stradale in the back? Or how's that conversation go? If I'm not in the middle of something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them the car and talk to them about it and ask them what they know about it. So... You know, and that's that's how you fuel the fire. And maybe, you know, if I'm still still there 10 or 15 years from now, who knows? They might come in and buy something. You never know. Hopefully you'll be there in 10 or 15 years. You're a pretty young yeah. dude. You know what, David? You've you've also done some track driving. What is it about track driving? How long have you been doing that? What do you drive? I've been driving on the racetrack since the late 80s, mm-hmm. off and on. Mm-hmm. Um, Today, I'm a member at Audubon Country Club in Joliet, which is a racetrack country club, but two road racing tracks. Mm-hmm. I've done a little racing there. I have a spec Miata race, full race car, mm-hmm. not street legal. Um, and uh, just do it to hone my skills. I'm not a super competitive person. I just want to improve my driving, understand more about driving. That's that's only a benefit. You know, it's a benefit to all of us from a safety standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great, great deal of fun, and I love racing with friends of mine uh, and people that I don't know. It's it's a great way, you know. If somebody, if you spend time at the track with somebody, you're tight with them. Mm-hmm. It's like playing golf. It's like you know, playing playing any kind of sport. It's it's the same kind of thing. 
And you obviously then like the concept. You know, I, I've heard so many people say that in, in 1900, the transportation for people around the world, certainly in the United States, was by the horse. And now, of course, people have, you don't take a horse to work anymore. What you do is you put them in a stable somewhere. You ride them occasionally for fun. Certainly on the weekends, you'll go out and you'll, you'll spend some time with your horse. Is that the function of tracks like uh, the Autobahn in Chicago? Essentially, I, I guess that's a that's a pretty good uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's for me, it's always more social, and it's more about the social aspect and the technical aspects of driving. I want to wind back to your Porsche purchase. Uh, I know you've got that car, and you're you're also one of those guys that likes to work on his cars. You you get your hands dirty, you skin some knuckles. How come? Uh, therapy. I like building stuff. I like improving things <laughs> no different than enjoying working on your yard once in a while or working on your house a little bit some people are just wired that way and i like to understand technically how things work and helps me in my job of course when you can explain to someone in a selling situation of what a limited slip does for them or or what a variable limited slip does for them what side slip control is in a 488 that kind of thing it, it does astonish me, David. I know sometimes when the uh, service department is closed on Saturday, people will call you up. Oh, they say, I, I, my battery was dead. I said, oh, well, you didn't plug it into the tender that came with the car. No. no. Okay, so you got it started, right? And, <laughs> and they say, yeah. And they say, every warning light's on on the dash. And then I explain to them how they might use their key to reset the computers in their car once their battery is charged up to uh, a full 12 volts. Uh-huh. Uh, because, of course, all these cars have computers that run on milliamps, and, and uh, they, but they need 12 volts at least to operate correctly. Well, I'm glad you're mechanical because I'm the type of guy that, that ain't. Uh, and I'm the one that's going to call you on that Saturday morning or even Sunday evening and say, David, uh, can, you, can you walk me through where the hood release is? Because I... <laughs> I probably won't know. Um, you've been all over the world traveling with uh, you and Terry and friends uh, all over the places. If you had favorite car events, things that you would say, these should be bucket lists for people, or these these are some of my favorite car experiences, whether it's on the track, off the track, road trip, concourse, etc. What what would you what would you tell people? Give give me two or three great places you you say as a car enthusiast you have to go to. Yeah, go to a Formula One race at Monza in Italy. Hmm. Uh, that maybe Monaco, Monaco is the popular choice, but I'd say go to Monza, especially if you like Italian cars, because mm-hmm. the enthusiasm of the Italians there is mind blowing. Rabid. Yeah. Go, yeah, go to Monterey Car Week. Everybody knows about that. It's uh-huh. uh, very, very congested, but uh, it's a phenomenal time. Rent a house in Carmel or something, and, and do Monterey Car Week mm-hmm. week someday. You don't have to do it every year. Mm-hmm. Make sure you go to. Laguna Seca and watch the vintage races and go to some of the auctions and go to some of the car shows. You'll have a blast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, go to, even if you're not interested very much in racing, go to a Formula One race somewhere, sometime. How about jumping into lemons for the guy or gal that just wants to go out there? Uh, some of that stuff? Lemons or chump car, highly recommended. Um, I've started a lot of people off on their track driving career at those places clients of mine who'd never been on a racetrack before and you just get thrown into the fray and it's despite what everybody says it's real racing 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and you're working with a, a team of people for a weekend. Yep. And that's a great bonding experience with anybody you do it with. Usually motor racing is a, tr- a team sport, isn't it? It is really a team sport. And, uh, uh, you know, if you do it all by yourself, it's not, not anywhere near as much fun as if you involve a bunch of other people with you. I've got a dent, dent, question for you here. Uh, I, you know, this whole situation with the supposed rolling back of the Ferrari, that LaFerrari down in Florida, the odometer rollback. It's a felony. Why would you even think about doing it? It's not a slap on a wrist. It's a felony to if you're caught doing something like that. I, I don't understand. There's not enough financial gain to make it worth that. It's real simple, actually. Real cut and dry, if you ask me. I don't, I, I don't care. I don't know. that. I don't really know. I've heard a lot of different things and read a lot of different things. I don't know the exact circumstances and who did what and exactly why, but... I don't, if a customer asked me to do something like that, it just, right. it wouldn't happen. Right. I just say, sir, it's a felony. If you can figure out how to do it on your own, that's your problem. But mm-hmm, uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not getting involved. You know, David, I had a conversation with somebody a couple of months back and we were talking about the greatest contributor to, to the sports car. And of course, I think somebody had come up with, uh, with, uh, Mr. Porsche all that way back. Somebody had mentioned Henry Ford. He was an old dude, of course, but when it comes down to sports cars, especially European stuff, in, in your opinion, and you've seen it all, who contributed the most to what the sports car is today? Well, I, you know, the answer probably for me, given that I, I'm involved in Italian cars and Ferraris, uh, it's got to be Enzo Ferrari, and there's a few reasons for that. Mm. I mean, Enzo was racing for Alfa Romeo in the 20s. I mean, his influence has is basically he's, he's been he was involved with the automobile from virtually the beginning and uh, uh, involved with Alfa Romeo and then started his own company in 1947 Ferrari and uh, his ability to bring together groups of engineers and drivers and uh, uh, other visionaries was unreal uh, tremendous entrepreneur uh, not all that well liked at times, mm. um, but today the mystique lives on. There's something about Ferrari right. that just isn't doesn't exist with any other manufacturer. It's not to put down Porsche right. and Dr. Porsche and what he accomplished. Mm-hmm. I mean, he designed the original Volkswagen Beetle. Right. Um, but um, Enzo Ferrari, I mean, he continues to have a huge influence on the sports car world today, and he died in i believe 1988 if i'm not mistaken so right so i think it's hands down no question i always ask this money no object what would you own i have a bunch of cars <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I'll run through them, so but... i don't think any one car can can quite get it but i guess uh i'll pick i'll pick one car for you uh and it's very a very specific car because they're probably not more than four or five of these cars exist in, in ooh, the world. Ooh, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> but uh, a, um, a Ferrari 275 GTB alloy torque tube six carburetor with a few factory competition options. Mm. Outside filler cap, that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, because that car is just such a joy to drive. It's such a great driving car, and it's, it's also usable once you come to grips with what it's worth 
and feel comfortable driving around a car that's worth that car. It's probably worth four or five million dollars, maybe even more. Um, if you can come to grips with the value of the car and realize that if somebody dents it, you know, and it costs ten thousand dollars to fix it, relatively speaking, it's not a big deal. It's probably already been dented a bunch of times over the years. So. <laughs> So why bother? You know, isn't it interesting too, David, at least it is to me, that with all of your expertise, all of your knowledge, and this is Powerball money we were talking about here, that you don't knee-jerk to a Bugatti Chiron or a, um, or a LaFerrari or a P1, that you, like so many people, go to the vintage stuff. What is it about that vintage that, that, that pulls you? Um, it's just a completely involving experience. These new cars are, you know, phenomenal technological exercises. They've become so fast and so easy to drive that you don't have to have any special skills to drive the thing around at, you know, 50 miles an hour over the speed limit. And uh, and I understand why. Uh, but at the end, it's it's not as inter- it's interesting technologically it's not as interesting to drive and it's not as an involving an experience mm-hmm. i've i've heard that from so many people and it's good to hear it from a guy like you that does this for a living that literally gets the gets in and out of cars all day long I want to thank you, first of all, Dave Alexander, for being on the show. I love the fact that you work on your own cars, and right after the show, I'm going to publish your cell phone uh, number so people can call you at 2 in the morning. Awesome. On, su- <laughs> on Sunday, if they can't get their glove compartment open, Dave is with Continental Autosports in Hinsdale, Illinois. I like to call it my second home. A super knowledgeable group of guys and gals there, and like David said, if he's not on the phone, he's not with a customer, he's more than willing to walk you around and help you make either your first or your last purchase. The best place to reach Dave Alexander is at his email address, which is da at continentalautosports.com. There's an S on the end of sports there. Is that the best place, Dave? Yep. Okay. Excellent. You're going to get a flooded email box. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Give me something to do, right? (laughs) I think you have plenty to do, my friend. (laughs) David, again, thank you. It's been fun. See ya. Bye, Dave. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you think. Go to drivewithdavepodcast.com and find out how to leave us a review on iTunes. I hope it's a good one, which we would very much appreciate. And there's a way to email us your questions, comments, and who you want on the show as well. All the episodes of Drive With Dave Podcast are on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And an overview of all the shows with links can be found on drivewithdave.com. Don't miss an episode. When you subscribe to the podcast, your device will be automatically updated with the new episodes and old ones will be removed after you've listened to them. No work required. And finally, I hope you also check out our bi-monthly newsletter, which will keep you in the know. And you can sign up at drivewithdave.com.